0: Interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Private Equity Podcast by Raw Selection. Joining us today is Jay Goldman co founder and CEO of Sensei Labs, New York best-selling author, and member of the Forbes Technology and Harvard Business Review Council. Welcome, Jay, and thank you very much for sharing your insights.
0: My pleasure, Alex. Thanks for having me.
1: Hopefully I've covered all the uh, bits and pieces you've got in there, So, there's quite a bit. I probably could have gone on for longer. But for all those wondering about those different elements, if you could give us a 60 to 90-second breakdown of you, please.
0: Sure. Thank you. I am co-founder and CEO of a company called Sensei Labs. We are an enterprise SaaS provider. We work with the world's largest corporations, professional service firms, and private equity funds to help orchestrate critical initiatives, including value creation plans in their portfolio companies based in Toronto, but spend lots of time both on Zoom and on airplanes. So often in other parts of the world and had the experience of Spinning this company out of a larger company called Click Health, which is where we started this technology and where we wrote the decoded company, all about our experience in building Click today to be one of the world's largest marketing firms in the life science
1: space. Appreciate the insight. So, what's one mistake that you see private equity firms or portfolio companies making, and what actions would you suggest to correct them, Jay? Yeah, I would separate that
0: between the PE funds themselves or the firms and the portfolio companies. I think we're at a really interesting moment in history from a private equity industry perspective, where the need for value creation has shifted from what I'll sort of broadly call financial engineering. So we've been in an era of maybe kind of two decades of cheap or even almost free money. And returns have been relatively easy as long as you were able to... the sort of interest rate return, you could attract LPs and raise funds. And so that was a different world than the world that we're now in. And value creation has become critical. LPs are now looking for durable, repeatable value creation where your rate of return has to be measurable compared to a higher interest rate. And that has shifted attention in private equity funds. The best funds that we talk to and that we see on a regular basis are putting the emphasis on that value creation team. And in the past, that team might have almost just been a checkbox in the list of things you sort of had to have to raise funds on the LP side or to attract porcos on the buy side. It has now become very quickly thrust into the spotlight of critical component of the fund and how you're going to be able to return on the investments that your LPs have made with you. And that's true for your current set of portfolio companies who may have been partway through a value creation plan that wasn't going to actually result in the right kind of returns. It's especially true for investments that you're making today or for funds that you're looking to close. So on the PE firm side, I would say the mistake might be that you're not putting enough emphasis on the value creation side and on hiring folks into that team if you didn't already have an excellent value creation team who are proven operators who know how to build companies and how to accomplish the goals that you have to accomplish. On the Portco side, I think the biggest challenge is probably around digital transformation. And we see this in the value creation plans we're helping to orchestrate today. We also see it in companies that we talk to. If you're especially in the business of buying legacy businesses, so if your sort of fund strategy is, we're going to go out and buy older businesses, maybe family-run businesses that have done very well, you're talking sort of mid-cap here, maybe not the large cap end of the scale, but you're going to go out and buy those, they are going to be lagging in their digital transformation. And you're very quickly going to have to put in place a plan around how to accelerate that and the talent necessary to do it. And attracting talent into those legacy businesses may be a larger challenge than you're anticipating. So if you're not putting enough emphasis on that at the portco level. If you're running a portco that is owned by PE and you're not putting emphasis into digital transformation, that is going to be a big determinant of your ability to be successful.
1: Perfect. So you've mentioned a few of this and now we're going to dive into. But first one, the term value creation, a very popular term at the moment and the popular private equity kind of calling, should we say. So what's your take on the kind of challenges and opportunities that private equity firms face with regards to value creation? Yeah, it's a funny term because
0: I think it's been... Euphemistically used in the industry in the past to mean firing people, which is maybe not what we, you know, where we are today and what it means today in the industry. And we talked to lots of funds who are very determined to actually create value. And that is when they use the term, they really mean we are going to build better businesses than the ones we bought. And we are going to help them scale through becoming better businesses and through growing their ability to produce revenue through. You know whether that's bolt-on acquisition, whether that's geographic expansion or repricing or new product lines or whatever it may be. And it's not to say that cost reduction isn't a factor. It will always be a factor in almost every value creation plan out there. But it is maybe less emphasized than it has been at times in the past where it might have been, how do we slash costs and then turn around and resell this thing? And so I think it's a term that's maybe morphed a bit as the industry has changed. And I think what we're seeing now especially as the interest rates have shifted as the need for value creation has become more prominent. And yes, there will absolutely be a cost-cutting component of that, but that durable, repeatable value creation goes well beyond your ability to just slash costs out of a business and into your ability to actually create new value for it. And that is a a newer mindset, I think, that we're seeing emerge.
1: So on... Researching for you, Jay, you've mentioned the term portfolio orchestration, which is not something I've come across too often. We talk about value creation, as you just mentioned, but portfolio orchestration. So, what first thing, what do you mean by portfolio kind of orchestration? What's your interpretation of that?
0: Yeah, so our platform is called Conductor, and so we love the term orchestration. It's a term that's gaining ground rapidly in the industry as well. So, you know, I'd love to take full credit for that. I don't think we can quite take full credit for it, but I think it's a term that's starting to resonate for people. We started our focus really on what we call enterprise orchestration. So more in working directly with mid and large scale enterprise. We work with Fortune 500, certainly about 20% of our customer base, but also lots of mid and large enterprise that aren't in the fortune list on a global basis. And so we have kind of a unique seat looking at what transformation looks like across those kinds of companies. And... Transformation may be a sort of capital T transformation program led by a chief transformation officer. It may just be a very large transformative program, could be a large m a transaction, could be a large procurement cost reduction. But those sorts of large-scale programs, the way to be successful at them is through orchestrating the team, less of a traditional enterprise project management approach, which was a lot of sort of rearward-looking create a plan and then try to keep the plan updated and chase people for status and all of those things. I think a lot of those things have actually created the need for transformation in the first place. And so you can't really address that transformation through the same set of tools and practices and processes that created that need originally. And that's where we lean into the word orchestration rather than what has been maybe a more traditional project management approach that really came out of large-scale construction and engineering projects. And rather than trying to apply that same methodology to managing and orchestrating today's rapid digital programs or large transformative programs, we lean more into orchestration. So what do we mean by orchestration? This is about getting all of the right people to play from the same playbook. So single source of truth across these programs. On the program execution side, where are we on schedules, on tasks, on risks and issues, on governance structures and all of those pieces? as well as where are we from a KPI tracking perspective, unified into a single platform ideally, so that you are minimizing the amount of manual effort that goes into tracking these large-scale programs. When we come into a lot of these transformations today, and I'll include value creation programs there as part of transformation, they are really just two different terms for the same kind of work. The vast majority of them that we come into today are still being managed in Microsoft Excel and PowerPoint. And those are both great platforms for very specific things, but they're not great platforms for managing multi-million or tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars worth of value that needs to be created and for risk-reducing your ability to execute that and for accelerating those timelines. And so what we often find in those programs, whether it's those point solutions or whether it's those in combination with more traditional enterprise project management, About 25% of the work effort of those programs is what I would broadly call status reporting. And that includes everything from figuring out where we are, to pulling data from different systems, to getting it all into Excel, to turning it in graphs and charts, and then putting it into PowerPoint. And maybe somewhere along the way, you've added a BI platform, so you've automated at least some of the report generation. But 25% of that work effort, if you just stop and think about a program... Let's say it's a very large program, and you have a hundred people working on it. That means twenty-five people are doing status reporting. If that's your sort of rate of that, and that's where you get with more traditional methods. With orchestration, you can bring that number down. We've seen some of our programs get as low as about five percent of that work effort. And so, if you're sitting, if you're listening to this today, and you are part of a value creation team in a private equity fund, or if you're sitting on the portco side and you're leading that value creation program. Think about the scale of your team and think about what a difference it would make to your ability to generate value if you could reallocate 20% of the work effort from status reporting to value creation. And that's really the promise of what we call portfolio orchestration.
1: So, and also you mentioned online, which is quite key at the moment for a lot of private equity firms, the classic challenge is... That we were hearing, well, there's two main challenges we've heard since COVID. Really, one has been talent, which is obviously great for us being an executive search firm, and then second has been deal origination. So that's kind of switched out a little bit, and the a third one or the second, the latter has been replaced from a deal origination perspective to capital raising, which has become particularly tough. How you mentioned online about you know how utilizing this portfolio orchestration piece to attract LPs and raising capital let's obviously we want to hear uh, how that works and what what private equity funds can be utilizing on it
0: sure i think there's an interesting tension here in that the folks who are out raising capital in most funds are not the folks who are doing value creation depends on your fund scale and size obviously and so if you're in a smaller fund you may wear both of those hats or some of both of those hats and so that does create a little bit of a challenge here because as LPs lean harder into we want to see evidence of durable value creation, I'm going to keep using that term, as they want to see more evidence of your ability to do that, it's a different set of people who they're talking to on the deal side when you're talking about making an investment into a fund than the people who are actually doing it. And so just one general suggestion I would make is if you've got a really great rock star value creation team, get them in front of your LPs so that they understand why you're able to do that on a repeated basis. And the more evidence you have of your historical ability to do that, the better. That is a challenge for some of the funds who are listening today because they haven't lent as hard into value creation. They haven't needed to. And so they don't have the historical evidence of being able to do that. That's where I think pieces like portfolio orchestration can come in. It's not the whole picture. But what you want to be able to show is we are putting in place, I'll just call it infrastructure. It doesn't necessarily have to just be technology. It could be repeatable plans and approaches to certain value creation levers. I'll use Bolt-on acquisition as an example. In many funds, that is a key part of the strategy. And so you're going to make a platform investment and then you're going to go out and buy a bunch of companies. The approach to closing those deals and then successfully completing a post-merger integration is a highly repeatable process. It's going to vary a little bit deal to deal and geographically and regulatory and all of those sorts of things. But there's a core component of it that's highly repeatable. And so if you can go out and say to an LP, we want to raise some funds here, and we're going to go out and pursue some platform investments, and we're going to do bolt-ons to those. And look, we have a, an approach here that's highly repeatable. We've built out checklists of how we go through post-merger integration. we de risk this significantly. We've shortened the time frame involved, and that allows us to accelerate our value creation. We are seeing general industry trend of hold periods creeping out closer and closer to six years. That's obviously going to affect IRR inside of funds that are holding onto their assets for longer. There are lots of funds that built their models on probably a five-year hold and are now seeing that creeping up closer to six. How do you accelerate those value creation plans that are lagging behind? One way to get there is by having repeated processes that you can drop into place. That will help you to accelerate. You can show those to LPs. It will help you on the fundraising side. It will also help you on the talent side. Because if you can go out and show to an executive that you're looking to bring in, we have a structure and framework for how we approach this. There is a set of tools that are available to you to be able to do this. They're going to increase your ability to be successful at this, which is going to put more money in your pocket. It's a more attractive proposition to an exec who might be looking to come into one of your portfolio companies. So I think you can actually cover off really all three of those concerns that LPs or that funds may have today.
1: Jay, kind of building out a private equity infrastructure and building out, you know, what's commonly termed as the kind of playbook type work and being able to drop that into different portfolio companies and sharing the information between portfolio companies. Look, I speak with private equity firms day in, day out, and this is not being done to an extent that it could be. And especially, you know, we focus low middle market, executives, C-suite into those firms and into those portfolio companies. Sorry, this just isn't being done. It isn't being shared, and there's some great firms that are beginning to build these elements out, and you know firms are going to have to play like, catch up to utilize that. And I love that you know that piece of demonstrating that to the LPs and not just running it from the portfolio companies and using that as your uh, differentiating piece to to raise capital.
0: So and, you know, I think Alex, there's a lot of reinvention of the wheel that happens here that just doesn't need to happen. It's not creating any value. So think about something as simple as a status report. Most of the time today, that status report exists as a PowerPoint deck. And if you look across the portcos that are part of your portfolio, for those who are listening, and you think about how they present status on their value creation plan, odds are pretty good that there's no consistent format to what that presentation looks like. And every one of your portcos has developed their own format and approach to that. Every time they go and do that, they've just invested a bunch of time that didn't need to be spent. There isn't more value in having 10 different formats for status reports. There is one good format for status reports, and then a bunch of variations on that version. So I'm picking on it as a very small example, but there are hundreds, if not thousands of places where that same reinvention of the wheel happens just because they didn't have a format to work off of. And if you were able to hand them right at the beginning of that investment, a format and say, here's the best format for preparing your status reports, you should just use this, there's a pretty good chance that it's good enough for what they need it to be. And you've just saved hundreds of hours of time collectively across that portco from reinventing something that didn't need to be reinvented. That is, at the core, how you can accelerate value creation through a playbook format. But also think about all of the time that went into that from a job satisfaction perspective. That's not the exciting work. If you're attracting me as an exec to come into a portco to work on a value creation plan, it's not because I have the opportunity to build a whole bunch of PowerPoint status reports. It's because I want to get into the work of doing the actual value creation and turning a company around and helping to build something better than it was when I came into it. So the more that you can take that kind of work off my plate, the happier and more engaged I'm going to be, the more likely I am to take the job. If I can see that there's a whole bunch of evidence, that's all going to be true.
1: Yeah, my immediate thing thought there is immediately goes to financial reporting within portfolio companies. Yeah, everyone's got the nuances and differences and difference in industry, but you're pretty specialist in these spaces, investing in similar type businesses, create standardization regarding reporting and build that out and have that, you know, built in a software package that you can see all businesses simply, et cetera, from there. So
0: yeah, and some of those are highly specialized KPIs, and they'll be specialized to your industry or to the lever that you're executing or levers that you're executing from a value creation perspective. And right now in your part codes, Although you may use the same words for the description of a KPI, and oftentimes you don't even get to that level, there's no standardization necessarily between, behind the calculation and the approach to calculating it and then presenting that number. If you can get to a shared KPI model across your port codes, and that's a core part of Conductor and we can certainly help, but there's lots of ways to do that. You don't need a platform like Conductor to necessarily get there. If you can get there, not only does it save a whole bunch of time, but it also allows you to start to baseline and compare those value creation plans in a very realistic way, apples to apples. And so now if you're a specialist investor and you've picked an industry sector that you're investing in and and your portcos are roughly the same sort of size, if you can baseline across a shared set of KPIs, you've got a competitive advantage now because you can help them understand where they're lagging behind from a value creation perspective in a very realistic way that you can't do until you can get to that sort of shared model.
1: So... Continuing on from that. So we've got obviously there's a play here with regards the to the playbooks. Another thing you've mentioned online is that kind of technology integration. It's something, in my opinion, that actually portfolio companies are better than private equity firms. Are. I think, you know, when you say Excel, I immediately think of how private equity firms manage their investor relations. And that's just criminal that we're still using such, I mean, as you said, it's a useful tool. But I know there's also other areas where they're still building models in Excel. They're still having um, X, Y, and Z. And Excel's a fantastic tool. And and we use it as well for some of our KPI reporting because there is other options, but they're not as customizable. They're not as simple for us. But there's also a lot of better options. What's your kind of recommendation on maybe what you see from some of the top P firms doing and, and what your recommendations would be on that kind of tech integration piece that obviously drives all the rest of the pieces we've just spoken about?
0: Yeah. There's an old saying in the technology industry that vast fortunes have been made building tools that stop Excel from being a database because everyone who uses Excel has at some point built a spreadsheet that was should really have been a database. And the problem is that Excel is just so much easier to use than most database tools that you end up just building it in there because it's the thing you know well and you have at hand and you don't have to go talk to IT and try to figure out how to install something and all, you know, build database queries and all that kind of thing. And there are some of those applications that Excel, I was going to say Excel excels at, which is terrible, but it does. I mean, that's where the name obviously comes from. I think that there's a lot of those use cases where it's totally fine. And it probably is the fastest thing to do. And, you know, going out and trying to build something more complicated is just not worth it. And that's probably true more when it's a one-off need than when it's a highly repeatable thing. Part of the problem of doing that in Excel is it's very easy to make a mistake hidden in a formula somewhere in that sheet, which has actually invalidated the model, and it will take a very long time for someone to catch that mistake. And the more complicated your sheet becomes, the higher the risk that you've compounded those errors in there. And so this isn't to knock on Excel. There's lots of great applications for it, but you should use it as a spreadsheet. That's really what it's built for. You can build very complicated spreadsheets. That's great. We came into a program once, which was a global pharmaceutical launch of what was Uh, turned out to be a blockbuster drugs, which in the pharma industry is more than a billion a year in revenue. They were launching in 26 countries, and they were managing the entire global launch in Excel spreadsheets. And they had built what was the most complicated spreadsheet I think I've still ever seen to this day. It had visual basic macros that broke every single time you tried to run them. It had system in which you were supposed to change the background color of cells to indicate the status of tasks. I mean, it was like a Frankenstein monster of a spreadsheet. And it actually led to the creation of Conductor. So I'm very glad I had encountered that spreadsheet when we did because it led to the creation of our platform. But that's the problem that we're helping to solve here is that Excel is a great spreadsheet. PowerPoint is a great presentation tool. Use them for those things. Don't use them as complex program orchestration tools and databases and tracking tools. I think your comment about portfolio companies being better at this is really interesting because some portcos Mm -hmm. are, absolutely, and then there are others that aren't. And if you're a fund, your investment thesis might be finding those companies that aren't good at it if you're good at it, and then doing that work for them can create a huge amount of value. So those legacy businesses that have done very well but sort of hit a growth ceiling And you can come in and replace a management team and you can take them through a digital transformation. That may be sufficient to create enough value to get to a good exit on its own without having to do a lot of other things. Because there are lots of opportunities out there that are just ripe for that kind of transformation work. I do absolutely agree, though, that when you peek behind the curtain in most of those private equity funds out there today, their internal operations are back to Excel and PowerPoint and emails and maybe a bit of Teams as we've kind of gone through the pandemic and Teams has gained traction there. And so it's not just the investor relation side, but it might be the due diligence side. So we hear a lot about the tension in a fund between the, at the handoff point from the deal team to the value creation team. And what the value creation team gets handed is often an Excel model of why this was a good investment to make, probably a PowerPoint deck or maybe a Word document of the deal thesis and proposal, and then a directory in a SharePoint drive that might have all the due diligence documents in it. And so think about this from how you're operating as a fund here. The most critical part of this is will that value creation plan be successful? Because otherwise, you're not going to be able to exit this asset on the other side, or you're going to have a way longer hold period. IRR is going to drop all of those kind of problems we've talked about. You're not setting that value creation team up for success if the handoff point to them is not as smooth as it possibly can be, and that they're not equipped with everything that might make them successful. That is a great moment for technology to step in there. If you can standardize the... Even the file structure in SharePoint of the due diligence stocks that they're getting handed so they know where to go and find the thing that they're looking for. If you can turn your model instead of just being a single Excel sheet into a working model that they can track against as they build that out where there's a real handoff point, you're setting them up for so much more success. And that's just one example of where technology could step in. Investor relations is a big part of that as well on the LP side. You've got routine KYC processes and whatever else that you need to do. They're taking up a ton of time if you're doing them manually through email today. If you haven't put in place a portfolio monitoring tool, like an eye level, a Cobalt, something like that, and you're still getting financial reports from your portcos emailed to you in a whole bunch of different Excel formats. And then you've got some junior analyst picking through them and trying to make sense of them. You're just spending a ton of manual effort that could be easily automated through existing technology solutions. And that is a trap where the cost of those solutions looks high because you're not taking into account the real impact of the manual effort that goes into it. And not just in people hours, although people hours are expensive. It's sort of a hidden cost when we don't directly think about how much of a person or team's time gets chewed up doing those. But really, the bigger impact is that all of those things contribute to your hold periods. Extending out every time you're inefficient in those, every time you're inefficient in closing a deal faster than you could have closed it, or in handing off to the value creation team and setting them up for success. If the first 6 to 12 months of every value creation period is just figuring out how to stand up the transformation office and hire the right executives in and put a project plan in place and do all of those kinds of things, You've just lost six to 12 months of value creation time that you could have accelerated significantly.
1: Sorry to interrupt here. Just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Grata. The private equity market is rapidly shifted to a data-driven proprietary deal sourcing standard. Grata provides the window into over 7 million middle market private companies. Contact Grata so you can access the market first. Request a demo at now back to the podcast. Another last bit, my research online about you, Jay, was the, uh, you seem to be the expert of the future of work, which obviously is certainly interesting from my perspective, but no doubt the audience. So let's hear it. What is the future of work, Jay?
0: Yeah, I don't want to say I'm the expert at future of work. There are lots of people out there who are thinking about this space. And I try to stay away from being a pundit as much as possible because there are so many black swan events that haven't, for those not familiar with the term, although I imagine most of this audience is, but white swans are highly predictable. Even gray swans are kind of predictable. Very few people expect to see a black swan. They're the sort of completely out of the so, you know blue, unexpected thing. COVID being a good example, unless you were one of the people who were saying there's a global pandemic coming, we're not paying attention. But for everybody else in the world, that was a classic example of a black swan. So I try to stay away from being too much of a pundit here. But when we wrote The Decoded Company... We really tried to take a look at how technology and data were changing the workplace and how they could be used to create more talent centric workplaces. One of the big themes coming out of Decoded that I think we were maybe a little early on, the book came out in 2014, so it's coming up on its 10th anniversary. But one of the things I think we were maybe a little bit early on was really moving away from one size fits all policies into more of policies that are appropriate at the individual level and The big shift there is the availability of data and technology that can help you adapt policies in real time. That could be internal policies about how you work with your team members, but it could also be things like governance structures. When you think about larger value creation plans here, this doesn't necessarily apply so much at the smaller or even maybe smaller mid-cap size. But when you get into the larger programs and you have a really strict governance approach, and you have to because you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars and you're probably talking about tens or hundreds of people who are working on this, You need a proper governance structure. But governance and agility are at opposite ends of the same spectrum in the sense that the more you crank up governance, the lower your agility gets and your ability to be responsive. And we've all felt this kind of pain when we get into highly governance structures where we have to follow a thousand step rules and there's no deviation allowed and you have to fill in this form in some terrible online tool and the form is hard to fill in and what ends up happening is you create a culture of people looking for loopholes and backdoors. How do I work around this thing? Because it's so painful to do the actual step you've put in place. And you're no longer a benefit to the business at this point. You're actually a high detriment to being able to succeed. And this is not necessarily... You, know, you can use this as an internal example. You'll get things like expense reporting is a terrible process and everybody hates it. Or you'll get things like trying to go through the right project stages in my value creation plan is so painful that I'm just going to avoid doing them and I'm not going to report status. And now we've lost any value that might come out of that. We talked about in Decoded was how do you use the technology that's available? And this was 10-year-old technology. So now it's even gotten much better. And especially as we're getting into the age of AI, starting to have a very strong presence in a lot of companies out there, even if it's today at the generative AI, large language model sort of level of chat GPT, but starting to get into more highly specialized versions of those models. Bloomberg just came out with Bloomberg GPT, which is a large language model trained very carefully around financial terms and understanding the financial market. So we're going to see more and more of this kind of thing. It becomes easier to deploy in a way where it can help us move away from one-size-fits-all and move into adaptive governance models that really tailor the experience at the individual level. And I think that's a big component of where we're going to end up future work-wise. Obviously, hybrid work, return to office, all of those things are highly pressing concerns today for leaders, whether you're on the Porco side, the PE side, the LP side, it doesn't matter. We're all dealing with the same set of things. And those are difficult to predict because it's such a rapidly changing landscape. I can tell you for us at Sensei Labs, we have adopted a completely hybrid approach. We have team members all over the world. So a return to office and a single office in our headquarters in Toronto. So a return to office wasn't really in the cards for us anyway, and it wasn't sort of part of the plan. But what we've really adopted is a work from anywhere approach. And we've had team members who have gone back to, from the, from Toronto, who have gone back to Brazil or India and worked for months at a time from there so that they can be with family members. We're very flexible with our approach, and it's been a huge benefit for us from a talent attraction, retention, and engagement perspective. And I think we are, we're seeing what those experiments with return to office look like. And I don't know, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of evidence so far that forcing people back in is the approach to take, but I think it'll continue to play out over the next few years and we'll see where that sort of ends up. So that element of future work may be a little bit harder to predict, but I would lean into the how do we think about using data and technology to create adaptive models that allow us to tailor everything we do from an execution perspective more than those rigorous models that we might have put in place in the past.
1: Pretty interesting. Yeah, we're, we're seeing ourselves, the change, and I've just been speaking to a lot of recruiters here and how we're foreseeing the market of what's going on at the moment as we look at certainly a new work from home. Like, technology perspective just makes sense, you know. But that's been the history of the world, if you wish. Basically, we've tried to uh, replace humans with technology all the way through and, and improve on the processes we can get to, say, time in simple fashion. But, yeah, the work from home thing's an interesting one. We're actually starting... To think we're going to see the reversal and a rebalance of the work from home type world. I think, you know, if you look at a lot of the big companies, GE have just come out, they've, they're they reducing work from home. Amazon have just rejected a 30,000 request for basically they proposed to go back to the office and 30,000 people in Amazon said we were against that and they have disregarded it type of thing. So I think there's a little bit of a balance, especially as a recession. If we move towards that, I think there's going to be a little bit of a, okay, we kind of need to see, it, especially with the bigger firms, because... There's just so much lack of visibility. And you know, I think one thing that private equity does particularly well is they don't just hire more people when they see a problem. You know, you've got some incredible executives, you've got incredible operating partners who are very experienced and they can say, right, well, how can we overcome this without just bringing another body in? And I think the big corporate world can definitely learn from private equity from a lot of things without being particularly one of them is, right, we'll just hire more people and then we'll make more redundant again. And, and I think the difficulty is you've got people probably doing things that they shouldn't be doing and that could be replaced by something else instead of, you know, basically instead of imp- implementing processes and systems as you've discussed in order to, to drive outcomes, such as the analyst type approach you mentioned, rather than having that data all feeding into a right. system that then spits it out. You might need, to, you still need somebody to interpret it. You still need somebody who can utilize ChatGPT, You can use it. It's not going to, You know, the people that will be disrupted are the people that don't know how to use these systems and can't make the most of them interpret the data and present it in a really easy way to be able to make decisions. But I think we're going to see a rebalancing as we've kind of seen the candidate king world. We can't get enough employees and everyone's fighting for talent, To I'm not going to say that's going to change because good people are always in high demand. At least that's, you know, part of our business model, But... So God forbid, the that stays. But also, you're starting to see a little bit of that. There's more opportunities coming in. There's more talent available. The employment rate is starting to cre- unemployment rate, apologies, starting to creep up. So, so I think that's an interesting one. And it's interesting to hear your kind of perspective on what your firm's done. But also, you're kind of saying that landscape's very much. But you're missing Meg crystal ball out just yet to say this is what's going to happen. I think that is a, an ever shifting landscape.
0: Yeah, that history of of us automating human labor which goes back millennia, has been accompanied also by loud protests that every version of that is putting people out of work and destroying jobs. And it's true, there are jobs every time we do that which disappear because they are the work that's now been automated. What's lost in that is that there are more jobs created on the other side that we can't envision when we're talking about the jobs that are getting eliminated. And that's a difficult one because it's easier to look at the thing that's in front of you than to picture the thing that is in the future that you can't imagine yet. If you think about people who are graduating university today and the kinds of jobs that they're going into, they didn't exist when I went into university. So they weren't even viable career choices because they weren't there. There was no data scientist, for example, to pick on one that is probably one of the hottest jobs you could be going into right now, which didn't even exist as a thing when I would have considered where my career was going to take me. And so there is a bit of a knee jerk reaction to this when we say, no, no, we can't automate things because if we automate things, we're going to, we're going to have all these people out of work. History doesn't actually bear that out when you go back. There are people who lose jobs. So I don't want to minimize the impact of that. But in the end, on the whole, we create more jobs and we find opportunities to retrain a lot of those people, not all of them. And so there will always be some people in each one of those rounds that are a bit left behind. And that is. A very unfortunate outcome at the individual level. If we look at a societal level, it's a bit of a different question. And I think there's perhaps more opportunity now for people to train themselves into some of those things that are coming up. I think there's a whole future career of prompt writer for AI, which is a fascinating idea that didn't exist even a year ago if you had said, I'm a professional prompt writer for AI. But There's a lot of jobs that are going to, at least in the short term anyway, going to become writing the right prompts to get the output from one of the AI engines to be able to do the work. And that's something that didn't exist beforehand. And so I remember when I was, so I'm in my mid-40s, so just for sort of context, but I remember when I was in sort of high school, there was a lot of debate about calculators. And should we be allowed to use calculators in math class? We're going to ruin the brains of all of these kids who aren't going to be able to do long division by hand anymore. Nobody is looking back on that decision of being like, no, you know what? We shouldn't have let them use calculators. It ruined everybody. We look back now and we're like, I can't imagine doing long division by hand. I'm not even sure I could still do it. And it's not a valuable skill. I'm glad I, I knew at some point the concepts behind it, but the execution of it by hand is not a meaningful skill in my life. My daughter, who's now 13, is certainly, she, I think she knows how to do it because she was taught it once, but she is much more able to use the calculation assistance, let's call it, than I was ever able to do in my time. And that's her native world that she's grown up in. And her kids, when she has them in you know, 20 years from now or whatever, they're going to be using a whole new generation of technology that didn't exist. So that's a path that has existed as long as we have been creating tools going right back to the wheel, the wheel automated, carrying heavy loads.
1: Yeah, it's, it just in my opinion, I've had this discussion many times and it just pushes things further in the supply chain model. So, you know, it's a bit like I, I usually use a simple road sweeper type process. We used to have people on roads sweeping to clean them up. We now have machines that sweep the road. We still have an operator of said machine, but we have a lot of people that now have to build that machine in order for that machine to then right. run and then operate and be able to repair that machine. Whereas the broom makers, obviously, you know, I'm sure they have this sort of decline. In their output and their production, but the brush makers will still have their process because they're made of brushes, and it yeah. all just fires up the supply chain exactly the same. And it was a you know, there's always the joke for, for our marketing team, you know, powerful marketing team here in the business, and they always say, Oh, you know, chat GPT, you know, we can put things together now, we can put our search briefs together power more powerfully and better, better written, certainly than I can I could be doing previously on the first side of the business. And the joke, oh, look, yeah, ChatGPT is going to take big job. And I'm like, no, no, you've been able to use ChatGPT to pull this data out, to be able to utilize it, to then check it and then make sure that this information is faster. We're just speeding up the process this stage. And uh, it'd be interesting to see what's actually going on behind the scenes of AI, because if we're seeing ChatGPT, it really interests me to see what's actually going on in the background, because we're talking about it. I'm assuming we're a lot further advanced than, than, you know, than certainly I would ever be accustomed and knowledgeable to. But really interesting to see what's happening there. Yeah, I, you know we work
0: with a lot of professional service firms. So our largest partnership is with Carney, the management consulting firm. But we work with lots of professional service firms and their client orchestration is how they use our platform. One of the things that comes up a lot there is you have thousands of junior people in those firms, actually probably hundreds of thousands, if you consider all the firms around the world, whose job is building PowerPoint decks. And they are taking data from a bunch of different places and then putting it into a PowerPoint deck and then submitting the PowerPoint deck. And then next week, they wake up on Monday and they do the same thing again. They go and pull the same set of data sources. And there's no real value to the work that they're doing. And it's very gauging work. It's not like they wake up every Monday morning excited to go and build the weekly status report. But there are probably hundreds of thousands of people who are very well paid, who work for large consulting firms. And that has been the model of them doing that. Before it was PowerPoint, they were building them by hand, but that has been around as long as there have been large consulting firms. I don't think anybody's going to be sad that component of work goes away because we can get AI to build status reports for us, or you can use tools like Conductor that automate a lot of that, and then you could layer AI on top of that. It's not that there's a union of PowerPoint deck builders who are going around complaining that they're going to be out of work. In fact, those people would love to do something that's higher value and more engaging, And those consulting firms aren't going to lose out on revenue there. Yes, today they are charging for the hours to build that deck, but it's not the hours their clients are happy about paying for. And it's not that the budgets are necessarily going to get smaller. If you went to your clients and said, great news, we've automated this very manual process that used to take a lot of time, and now we can have those people spend time on higher value strategic work, your clients will be thrilled that you are now providing more value to them than you were before. That I think is at the core where we're gonna see the biggest impact of things like ChatGPT. And I don't wanna only talk about it, there's some other amazing AI models out there as well, but it's that automation of today anyway, it's the automation of that highly manual, low value work where we can get to much better outcomes faster than we were able to before. And that just frees up our time to focus on those higher value up the supply chain kind of tasks that are going to have a bigger impact.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So what do you love about the private equity industry and what do you dislike like about it, Yet, I think there's so much
0: opportunity for impact in this industry. When you peel back the ownership of many of the mid and large size companies out there, you find private equity. And there's a value chain there, especially in the technology business. We're a software company, so that's our kind of background. But if you think about it from the sort of stages of investment, from a seed stage into a Series A into a Series B, and eventually if you're successful into private equity... There's really a whole set of value creation phases that happen there. And the better investors are able to actually produce value there. We have fantastic investors here at Sensei Labs, and they have been amazing at helping us from our Series A round in our growth and into our development as a company. And that's what you should really be looking for at each one of those stages. To me, the idea that we can help power an industry that's creating that much value is very exciting for what we do. I think there's a potential downside here, although it's waning, which is that a lot of that value creation, at least in that age of sort of free money, was really on the financial engineering side, and it was less about creating actual value. And the industries, over the years, sometimes had a bad reputation that it was really about coming in and just firing a lot of people and then flipping the company. That, to me, is less exciting than the business of real value creation, and I'm glad to see that as an industry, we're headed in that direction.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Was that... The dislike piece was that purely around maybe the previous kind of area of private equity of you know that kind of come in restructure, get rid of people,
0: yeah, I think it's a big component, but I mean, we don't see nearly as much of it anymore as has historically been true, but I think you know there's so much more opportunity to lean into the positive side into that how do we make the world a better place and I don't mean that necessarily in an, in sort of a big e s g way, although e s g is a big factor in a lot of people's conversations today when we're talking to funds there's a lot of pressure on them from LPs to be able to report on ESG data and to track it. I think we're headed to a point where government regulation is going to make that mandatory in the same way that we see financial regulation requiring certain reporting standards. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And it's going to become a pressing concern if it's not already at the fund level and then therefore at the port co level. But I don't necessarily mean make the world a better place purely in sort of ESG w- ways. I would love to see more of that. But you know what I mean is, if we're going into to companies and we're buying them with the goal of making them a better company when we sell them down the road, then we are improving the world one company at a time. We're making it a better environment for the team members who are there. We're seeing, you know, interesting to see things like KR had a really big exit in a garage door company last year, and it was a high-profile deal because they actually returned a huge amount of money to all of the team members there. And you think about team members who are working in a garage door plant in sort of middle America, which I think is where the plant was located. And we're talking about paydays into the hundreds of thousands of dollars on the exit of that. To me, that is where there's a huge positive side to what happens in this industry when the deals are structured in a way where everybody benefits, including the employees of the company, and where we're able to create more of that kind of good in the world. To me, that's really exciting.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that was a pretty big deal in itself without uh, the payout I went across at a team further than C-suite. What are your influences, Jay? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to? uh, And you would recommend that others check out?
0: I try to read and listen across a very broad range of things. So less about, you know, focus necessarily on our industry or the technology industry. Lots of great podcasts out there. If you have a broad range of interests, I think you can find lots of things that are appealing, whether it's from a tech investing perspective, or you know, I'm, I personally have a huge fan of design. One of my favorite podcasts is 99% Invisible. Highly recommended if you're a fan of design or of the built world. They cover a very wide range of topics that are just really interesting. So I try to vary as much as I can. I've got a, a nasty book buying habit, which is evidenced by the scale of my bookshelves. And so I've shifted mostly towards Kindle at this point, just to save space on the bookshelf. But Uh, One of the things that I started to do is I, I created an Amazon wish list, and every time somebody gives me a book recommendation, I add it to the wish list and I put in a comment of the person that it came from. And that just helps me, first of all, to be able to thank them afterwards when I've read the book and go back and say, hey, thanks for that book recommendation, even if you made it four years ago. But I tracked it, and I remembered, and I came back. So yeah, I think just try to... I mean, my advice here always when asked this question is just be really curious. The more that you can read on a broad basis, the more information you can take in on a wide range of topics leads you to being able to connect the dots as much as possible. And maybe in ways that other people haven't been able to connect them. If you consume all the same inputs as other people in your industry, then you're going to connect the same dots as everybody else in your industry. If you can bring in design from 99% Invisible, if you can bring in an interesting tech perspective from the All In podcast in terms of how some of the leading investors in Silicon Valley think about the world. It's not that you necessarily have to agree with them, but that you're bringing in their viewpoint and you can connect that to a private equity podcast like this one, you're going to get to a series of dot connections that other people aren't going to see. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And what book are you either reading right now, Jay, or what book would you uh, recommend that you previously read that just be essential read for any private equity investor, portfolio exec?
0: That's a good question. In terms of what I'm reading right now, I was just recommended a book yesterday that I just started called Rage Becomes Her. It's a book about women's anger, I guess is the best way to put it. But if you are an exec today who is leading a company and D&I is a concern for you and you want to make sure that you're getting diverse perspectives, particularly if you're not a woman and you maybe don't have the lived experience of that, I think reading books that are written about experiences other than yours helps to open up your perspective. So very early in the book, I can't necessarily recommend it, but it was strongly recommended to me. So I'll pass along the recommendation. And I think when I read nonfiction, and I try to read, actually, I sort of alternate fiction and nonfiction because I think fiction, a lot of people as they get older move away from reading fiction and sort of feel like it was something they did when they were younger. To me, that's a mistake. You learn a huge amount about the experience of being human from reading good fiction and from the characters that are created by good writers, and it helps you be a better writer, which is a critical skill from a communication perspective. So, I can certainly enough emphasize continuing to read fiction as you get older. Maybe be more selective about the books that you're reading, but I strongly recommend that. But when I read nonfiction, what I look for is helping to understand the world through viewpoints that aren't mine. And so, whether that's a book about how to lead an organization and structure the culture around that. There's some great books out there. I liked Work Rules about the experience of building Google, the Netflix. There's a few good Netflix books about how they've built their culture of no rules at Netflix and how to implement that. I think there's some really great things that you can find in there. Uh, If you're finding yourself in a low trust environment, Speed of Trust by Stephen Covey is a great book. Helps to understand how to build trust among team members. So I think there's a lot of really good reading that you can find out there from a nonfiction perspective, but try to read widely. Don't fall into the trap of just what's the latest private equity book out there that I can read.
1: I'm in a similar challenge challenger. My bookcase is full. I'm now stopping. My desk is just the left of me and I have a stack of books that are on and I've even got the tree, as they call it, behind me, which is uh, which around full. So I'm in a similar position. My missus has stopped me having them in the house. Uh, so they've all had to come to the office and we've got bookshelves and bookcases all over the shop. So I've got the same challenge as you there, Jay. It's a love. It is a lovely challenge to have, though. You know. Well, it is, it, and I love being able to go back and read things. I make notes on them, so yeah, it's definitely it's nice to have. Certainly, from my perspective. So, if anybody wants to reach out post this podcast, Jay, how best do they, if they get in touch with you, please? Yeah, Sensei Labs is just sensei SenseiLabs
0: dot com. S e n s e i l a b s dot com. You can find us on LinkedIn and various social networks as a company. You can find me across pretty much every social network out there as Jay Goldman. J a y G-O-L-D-M-A-N. So find me on Twitter or Instagram or wherever you hang out, LinkedIn, and happy to continue the chat from there. We run a we- regular webinars that touches on portfolio orchestration. So if you're interested in learning more about it and you'd like to take a peek under what we're talking about with some very practical examples, go to our website and you can find the sign-up for our portfolio orchestration webinar series there. We also posted on LinkedIn. So you'll find those links on LinkedIn as well.
1: Perfect. Thank you very much. Well, Jay, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your insight. You leave us lots to think about from a value creation perspective, portfolio orchestration, which is uh, a, little bit of a new one on me, and uh, lots of value for private equity professionals, portfolio executives. So, thank you very much for sharing everything you have. My
0: pleasure. Thanks for having me, Alex.
1: And as always, thank you very much for joining us. For those listening, and of course, should you ever need support with private equity professionals or portfolio executive hires, please reach out to us. A real selection. We operate across Europe and North America. If you've not already, please just subscribe. And you'll be notified of the next podcast, which comes out every two weeks. Until the next time, keep smashing it, and thank you very much for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.